This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. While both Democrats and Republicans expected their candidate to win in this election, the national polling firms were decidedly clear in their prediction of a blue wave. Polling firms assured the cautious electorate that they had addressed the methodological errors of 2016. This time would be different. And yet, the results of 2020 continued the streak of surprises. To wit, the polling aggregator 538, launched in part as a remedy for the errors of 2016, estimated voter sentiment to favor former Vice President Joe Biden by between 8 and 10 points on Election Day. Though they and other firms largely predicted the winner, the final national polling results exposed a popular vote estimate error of 5%. The Senate polling predictions fared worse with an error of 7% in Iowa, 6% in Florida, and 7.5% in Wisconsin. Are these differences between polling and election results attributable to error in polling techniques or in our ability to interpret the data pollsters provide? My guest today is Spencer Kimball, Assistant Professor and Director of Emerson College Polling. Professor Kimball's primary research focus is in survey methodology and the testing of data collection methods. After predicting a Hillary Clinton landslide in 2016, Emerson Polling adjusted its methodology and has since earned an A- from Nate Silver's 538, which is labeled Emerson the fourth most accurate polling firm in 2020. Spencer will share with us his experience as a professional pollster, the challenges of providing accurate results, and how consumers of polling data should interpret information. When we return, I'll be joined by Emerson Polling's Spencer Kimball. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Spencer Kimball of Emerson Polling. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Joe, thanks for having me. All right. Now we're uh, nearly a week beyond Election Day, uh, and some of the election dust has settled. Uh, there seems to be uh, some surprise in the election results when compared with polling estimates before the election. As a pollster, uh, what can you say about Emerson's predictions and those of the, about the uh, polling industry in general? Well, Joe, uh, I think the nice part is, is that, you know, with polling, everything is on the record. So you go back and you can look at your results. And when you follow the Emerson National Poll, we were showing a very close race throughout. Uh, Back in August, we had it at a two-point national race. By the end of September, we thought it was about four points. And at that time, we thought the race could literally go in either direction. Now, this is contrary to what you saw in a lot of other national polls, that showed uh, Joe Biden with an eight, nine, 10, 12 point lead nationally. And I kept looking at our numbers saying, why don't we see this? Why don't we see this this larger blowout? Um, In fact, actually in our last poll, we had it at five points nationally a week before the election. And between the end of September and our last poll, remember we had it at four points. And I said at that poll, if this thing blows up one or two points towards Biden, he's going to win the whole election. And if it goes back towards Trump one or two points, he's going to win the whole election. And it was literally sitting on an edge, on a, you know, on an edge blade um, for that time period. I think what was happening was if you looked at other pollsters and they're, they're very good pollsters, but they 
uh, may have just missed the, the sense of what was happening around the country, but they had consistently put Biden up by eight to 10 points nationally for a very long time. And you have to understand an eight to 10 point national win, none of these states are going to be competitive. It's going to look like McGovern or Mondale or um, Goldwater. You're going to look at a massive blowout of an election. Now, that's not what we saw. We saw a lot of close races that broke for Joe Biden. And that's essentially what we thought was going to happen. And we think the COVID pandemic uh, at the end of the day was too much for Donald Trump to overcome. But you must remember that incumbent presidents have a very strong track record of getting reelected. So Joe Biden had a lot going against him to try to unseat an incumbent president. But I think his, his uh, you know, which was out of his control to some extent was the COVID pandemic. And as those numbers continue to spike, you know, you got a lot of states that fell just shy for Donald Trump, Wisconsin, uh, you know, maybe Georgia, maybe Arizona. Uh, Nevada seems to be pulling a little bit more, but still close races. Now, there are other states where Trump lost his support, Minnesota, New Hampshire, uh, parts of Michigan. Um, so we saw a shift away, but Trump still maintained very strong support in Iowa and Pennsylvania and primarily Wisconsin. So, um, you know, there, there was some movement. I think we caught some of it. We didn't catch all of it, um, which is why I think, you know, as you watch the different states come in, you kind of had uh, differing opinions about how the polls were doing, um, particularly down in Florida. I thought that uh, was a was poor polling overall. Um, but outside of that, uh, the night, I think, got more disjointed based on how the votes were counted than necessarily what the opponent polling was suggesting. Well, I, um, I appreciate your, uh, your relative uh, high performance uh, from a national level, but uh, you invited the question about uh, Florida. I did notice uh, before going into the election, you had that going to Biden uh, by six points. Um, didn't go that way. Um, so clearly you, you, you got things right with, well within the margin of error at a national level. Why is it harder to... Uh, uh, measure a state than an entire country. Yeah, let's talk about Florida. So we have polling in Florida for two months, and our polling has it as a close race, two to three points, slightly leading for Joe Biden. And we get this last poll back. And I look at the numbers and I say, this is a bad poll. And we're looking at it. And I said, no, there's no way Joe Biden's going to win Florida by five points. And but that's where the poll is. So now you start looking at other polls. And you say, this is an outlier. It's got to be thrown away and we need to do another poll. But now we look at other polls and we say, you know what? We're not that far off. There's other polls that have it at four or five points by good pollsters. Is this not an outlier? Is this just how it's going to be in Florida? Is that, is that, is that possible? Now in Florida, we had a systematic problem in our methodology. So even though I thought Biden had a, a slight lead, he did not have a slight lead because what we had done is combine uh, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach County. That's Southern Florida. Uh, traditionally, they vote very uh, plus 25 Democrat in that region. Um, but this time, Trump was able to make very strong inroads in Miami-Dade, uh, particularly amongst the uh, Cuban Hispanic community, uh, cut that lead down to single digits and kind of threw off all of our polling down in that Southern part, which overemphasized Biden's position. He should have been down by a point as opposed to 
So that is how, though, sometimes polling will get um, thrown off is that when you do have these other polls out there and you can't just throw away your poll as an outlier and say, that's a bad poll, we got to toss it and, and, and go back in the field. Um, and I think that's what you see down in Florida. But of course, um, you know, you just look up to Georgia and we had two polls in the last two weeks that had it tied to one point for Trump. Now you could say, well, you, you should have had Biden. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, we thought Georgia had swung about five points. Uh, remember, uh, Biden, uh, Trump wins Georgia last time by five points. We see that swing. North Carolina, we see that state as a state where Trump had lost support. Um, we had it as a toss-up. He might win by a half a percentage point when those final votes are counted. That's a state that he wins by four points. So generally speaking around the country, there were states that we thought we saw Trump's movement about four to five points. Uh, take a look at New Hampshire. New Hampshire, we did a poll, we had it at seven points, uh, thought the state was over. Same thing with Montana. Um, so certain states you could look at and say, okay, uh, there looks to be that movement. That movement doesn't happen in every state. And that's where we made our, our error um, in our polling design, is that we saw this movement consistently across the country. Uh, Arizona, that's a state that Trump wins by three and a half points. He's probably going to lose it by a point or two. Again, a four or five point shift. Um, within that state. But Nevada, a state that he loses by two and a half, he's probably going to lose by about two and a half. So we don't see that shift. And that's where some of the polling overemphasized the Biden momentum because it overemphasized how much drop Trump was getting in his own support. Um, again, these are four or five point changes, but they do make a, a you know an impact on the, on the final results. But again, um, outside, you know, maybe Florida was going to swing. It didn't swing. And so as you look at these states, Trump had a lot to defend. Um, and the question was, could he crack into any of those? And he barely does. Uh, let's not, you know, I understand nationally, it's going to look like a five to six million vote victory. And it's not going to look, it is going to be. Um, but within these states, it was very competitive. And, um, you know, the state polling had some, you know, variability within those numbers. Uh, some of those uh, more Republican firms uh, were a little high on Trump in some areas, and they were right on with Trump in some areas. And some of the Democratic firms were, you know, in the opposite direction. But generally speaking, when I was reading over Real Clear Politics, I had a pretty good sense of what the race was going to look like. Our numbers sometimes fell within where they were going. Sometimes they were bucking the trend. Um, but that was the trend that we saw is that Trump was going to lose some of his older white support. And I think that's what generally happened around the country. He was able to pick up some minority support, but not enough to offset uh, what he lost. And um, I think that's what the polling kind of showed you. And that's, um, I think the biggest problem with the polling is, is the media's interpretation where you know, every interview I would try to do, even in Florida, uh, even on that last poll, I would say, listen, I'm not going to be surprised to see Donald Trump win the state by a point because it's within the point polls margin of error. Uh, polls can range between in a survey like that. It was a whatever, three something margin of error. Um, Trump's score could go up that amount. Biden's score could go down that amount. Um, so those things, that's the type of uh, variability and what we call the central limits theorem that allows polling to be possible. Unfortunately, not all of them are going to fall exactly on, on the dot, um, but I thought it gave you a pretty good sense of what happened. And uh, from there, you can make your own interpretation. Well, 
Uh, that's pretty comprehensive of a review. And I appreciate you doing this more or less in real time. Uh, literally, there are some ballots that have not been counted yet. So I appreciate you being able to interpret quite a lot of data in a relatively short time. So let's just take a, let's uh, change our uh, focus. Let's back up to a, uh, perhaps a, a more painful, but maybe better understood election, 2016. Uh, you were a polar there. So were many others. Um, I'm not going to call you out for uh, an error. You did call for a, a Clinton landslide, but so did many others. I, I, I mentioned in my intro that um, this Huffington Post gave her a 98% uh, probability of, of, of winning. Um, what can you say about your, uh, what you learned or what you, got, you think you got wrong, what you learned and how that informed 2020? Well, in uh, 2016, we saw kind of similar to what we were seeing here, a close race, a lot of races right on a knife's edge. It could go either way. And in 2016, it broke for Trump in Wisconsin. It broke for Trump in Michigan. It broke for Trump in Pennsylvania. Um, and it breaks for Trump in you know North Carolina. It breaks for Trump. So he gets those breaks. It was that close again. Um, I think people, they have to realize this was not a blowout election. Um, this was a, a tight race in a lot of tight states. Now, we tried to improve upon our performance. Uh, we expanded the universe of people we could collect from. We added online panels. We added uh, cell phone recipients. Um, we were looking to try to uh, have a more representative sample to see if we were missing a particular type of voter. And um, generally speaking, we were on, we underestimated Trump's impact, you know, Trump's support by about four or five points in about four states. Um, the other nine states was about what we expected to see. Um, and, uh, you know, so, I think those were, those were from 2016, uh, the same mistakes that we saw, um, kind of the same road played out. I think the biggest differences and where the pollsters saw differences was Georgia, Arizona, as states that were changing. Um, I thought Michigan was gonna be a tough state for Donald Trump the entire time. Uh, he seemed to have lost uh, support early on. And I was impressed how close he made Michigan, don't get me wrong. I thought it would be closer to four or five or our number had it at seven. Didn't, um, didn't one poll have it at 17 for I Biden? think that was in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I'm sorry. Uh, but Wisconsin, again, a state that we thought we, we we got it right after the midterms. I mean, after 2016, we jumped into 2018. Uh, we did the Evers-Walker uh, race, um, had Evers pulling that one out, which was a big win uh, for the Democrats up in Wisconsin. But at the end of the day, Wisconsin almost looked about the same as it did in 2016. So I do think that the polling overestimate, underestimated the Trump support in, in some areas. And I also think that the polling underestimated Trump's support nationally for his four years in office. And to me, that's a larger narrative that could be discussed because if the polling is all wrong at the end of the day nationally, well, what were all those approval ratings? And if Trump really wasn't at 43%, when was if he was at 49% approval, how would that have changed the narrative of how people would have thought? So I think there's a lot to still learn from this election. And we'll take the time once the votes are all counted, as you mentioned, to really look into um, you know, details like Senate races and why we saw significant you know, bulleting in Democratic ballots and not in Republican ones. And by bulleting, I mean, they voted for Joe Biden and then they seem to not vote for anybody else on the ticket, uh, as opposed to Republicans who voted down the ticket, which shows why or suggests early on 
why they were able to do better in almost all of those Senate races than Joe Biden was able to do. Um, and part of that may have been, um, you know, voters uh, just not interested in, in down ballot or only there for Joe Biden or splitting their ticket. So, so those are things that we're going to look at after all of the votes are certified. And that gives us something to do over the, uh, the cold winters here in New England. Sure, sure. Uh, okay. So uh, uh, I want to um, change the focus from what you've clearly laid out as a very national or state-oriented uh, breakdown of the electorate to more of a demographic uh, analysis. Did you, for instance, either in 2016 or now in 2020, though it's perhaps too close to call, did you see any uh, substantial undercounts? When you're trying to poll, you're trying to get a broad sense of what, what folks will do when they walk into the booth. I, the narrative I had heard after 2016 is they underestimated or undercounted uh, the number of white working class voters, if you want to use those terms, uh, and perhaps then adjusted for those errors in 2020. Uh, did you do a similar adjustment based on who you missed on 2016? Uh, and are there new people now that you realize you've missed in 2020? Well, again, each state tells its story. And you're going to have to take the time to look at each state. So Texas was one that we really spent a lot of time looking at because, as you know, uh, Texas had about 800,000 more voters prior to Election Day with about 9.8 million early votes as opposed to 2016 when they only had 9 million votes total. So we knew that Texas was gonna have a very large turnout. The question was who was gonna be the additional turnout of roughly 2.2 million people. And uh, we made a mistake there of estimating it based on uh, population size. So, I, well, we don't know if we made a mistake yet. Uh, we have to go look at the data, but with Trump winning the state by five to six points, I presume that the white turnout is going to come out at a higher propensity or just at their same propensity as the Hispanic turnout, or at least um, the Hispanic turnout did not uh, vote at a higher propensity than they normally do. And because of that, we were light on Trump out there and light in the Senate race uh, with Cornyn winning by uh, five or six, where he's going to end up winning by nine or 10. So those type of decisions that the pollster makes at the state level do have obviously obvious consequences. Uh, the more difference that we see in the makeup of the electorate. Um, now in Georgia, we chose wisely in that we thought that the uh, minority electorate would increase um, based on registration numbers uh, from the state over the last four years or two years. So those numbers held. Uh, Arizona was a similar type of, of play, but it, at the end of the day, it's gonna be a state-by-state -state analysis of looking uh, who came out? Who are these new voters? Uh, were these new voters? Now, every election, you get five to eight percent new voters because people become of age and people move. So you always have some of that. But we're looking at, you know, 20, 25 percent new voters. And so there's a lot of people that came out in this election. Um, and I think it's important that we take the time to learn uh, who those folks were and if they're going to stay politically active or if this was just um, the COVID election that in my opinion, will probably have the highest turnout for the next decade. Um, I don't think we'll have uh, 160 people vote again. It was kind of like 2008. Uh, 2008 had the highest turnout until 2016. So it took a while. Um, I think this turnout is going to be tough to beat, certainly in 24. And, um, you know, depending on if states go to more mail balloting. But if uh, we revert back, uh, we will. Um, 
will underperform, I think, from what we were able to do. Well, I, I want to unpack those uh, concepts a, a little bit further down a little later, but I want to get right into sort of the mechanics of actually voting or actually polling voters. You, you call them on the phone or you might have a clipboard on the sidewalk, um, but there's a sort of a mythical, uh, I don't know if there's any validity to it, but um, uh, the what's now I would call the proverbial shy Trump voter, which is, you know, are they going to be out there? In other words, uh, that was the assumption. If our poll, polling is wrong, it's because people are reluctant to admit that they're voting for Trump. Is that uh, is there any validity to this uh, notion? Or I'd, I'd call it not shy, perhaps fearful. Uh, I haven't met too many shy uh, Trump voters. I have met many that are uh, fearful of sharing their opinion with others. So um, did you measure anything like a shy Trump voter? I mean, it certainly seemed to be what we were seeing in our numbers in the Midwest. Um, those numbers all pretty much underperformed five or six points. And you got to remember, we're using the same methodology generally across the country. So the same way we collected data in Arizona is the same way we're collecting it in Ohio. Yet in Ohio, they were uh, much softer on Trump. It looked like they had moved uh, three, four points away, at least the older white vote. But then came election day and bang, it was the same number as 2016. So I, I do think that there, there might be something to uh, the Trump anomaly. Uh, I think we saw that in 2016 and we didn't see it in 2018. Uh, generally speaking, the polling in 2018 performed at a very high level. Um, and it might just be that Donald Trump is he's a unique candidate. He's been a unique president and it just might be that type of person that is, he is tough to measure. Um, but as I said, if our national polling is, is more accurate than the other national polling, I think there's got to be time to reflect upon this presidency and see if maybe the perceptions of what was going on are different than what we were living in at the time. Now that we have more data to look back on and see um, approval ratings and, and things of that nature to better understand, in my opinion, how America was reacting to this president. That's an interesting concept. And I, I think what you're saying is perhaps uh, he wasn't as behind as everyone had thought in general, as far as approval and uh, satis job satisfaction. So let me ask, a, I don't know if you'd call it an awkward uh, question, but if I draw a line between 2016, and 2020 and say, uh, pollsters, not you uh, as much, but many other pollsters uh, uh, got it wrong in both cases. Um, but they both seem to get it and all seem to get it wrong in the same way, meaning in all cases, they underestimated uh, the popularity of Republicans and overestimated the popularity of Democrats. I'd like to think uh, perhaps it's a common methodology error across all polling, uh, but uh, perhaps there is another explanation. Is it perhaps a bias or even, uh, I hate to make a sort of a sinister uh, accusation, but uh, maybe a political agenda associated with um, underestimating uh, the uh, performance or perceived performance of an incumbent president. Yeah, you'd have to talk to the other pollsters about that. Um, I think we were generally in line with public sentiment on, on that issue. Uh, our biggest frustration was that we were generally an outlier when we would put out our monthly national poll. And um, now with that, we look back upon that. It uh, gives you the, the, the sense that, um, you know, something was off in, in their calibrations. And I think the polling firms have to look at that uh, as well as we do. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not... Uh, we shoot to make every basket and uh, we're not satisfied if uh, you know, even one goes around the rim and falls out. So we're certainly not satisfied with this performance. Um, 
And I and I do I do hear what you say about the bias. We saw that in 2016. I did a study of all 1,200 polls that year and compared them to the 800 polls from 2012. And in 2012, there was a bias. The the polls were off to a much lesser extent, but the ones that were off lent to uh, Mitt Romney 60% of the time, and the ones in into Obama 40% of the time, which is essentially what you expect to see if you flipped a coin 50-50. Sometimes. Just because it goes 64 doesn't mean it's a bad coin. Um, but in 2016, it was a 90-10 bias. And so as these polls, which way did it lean? It leaned towards the Democrat, towards Clinton. 90% of the time, that's a systematic bias. And that's something I'm looking here in 2020. It looks to be the same type of bias. And unfortunately, we were part of that bias to some extent in those four or five states where we overestimated Biden, underestimated Trump. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, you know, because we're using the same methodology, but maybe it's the people in those regions that answer it. Um, but regardless, it's something that has to be looked at internally by pollsters. And um, who's to say that Donald Trump doesn't run again in 2024 and we have to deal with the same anomaly? I think uh, it's you know, incumbent upon us to, to look at why these numbers were so off. So for our listeners who are uh, eager uh, not to assign blame, to, but to get the right answer and to understand um, whom they should listen, you know, who should uh, get their vote as far as uh, pollsters, uh, I'm a, a, a follower of 538, um, Nate Silver's uh, website. He's, uh, a, a, I hope you'll characterize him as a, a polling aggregator. He, in other words, he, he takes the polls of the polls and uh, aggregates them to give a, an overall view. In your mind, um, should a, uh, a polling consumer uh, find a pollster that they like and trust, or is there some use in aggregation? In other words, do we uh, have a, uh, um, a better result when we look at the average of all the, the polls, presumably averaging out the outliers uh, or the mistakes of, of, of others? So, uh, is yeah. it groupthink or, or, uh, or, or beneficial? I, I don't have any problem. I really like uh, RCP because they kind of give you a little bit of a gatekeeping process of all of the polls that are out there. When I go to 538, it's kind of overwhelming to see um, all of the polls and, and then trying to figure out which ones you should look at. Uh, I think it's important that you look at people's track records. You know, uh, generally, unless they change methodologies, that the methods, that the results should be the same. Uh, some pollsters are known to be high on one party and high or high on another party. Uh, those are things that you have to keep in mind. But um, no, I wouldn't uh, say you should only look at, at one set of numbers. And remember, a survey, a poll is a subset of surveys. It's a range of scores that we're looking at. Um, and generally speaking, it falls within that range that we'd expect. And I know it's, you know, we'll see when the, the votes are counted what everything looks like around the country. But it might not be that much different than what was expected, give her you know, a couple of states here and there. Um, but the expectation is that the pollster will always be right. And I'm not sure how many more times the pollster has to be wrong for those expectations to change. Um, and I try my best uh, when I do my interviews to give you, hey, this is a range of scores. This is what we're looking at. Um, and this is what, you know, this is how you should interpret it. So to me, I think it's beyond looking at the numbers and reading uh, the analysis and seeing what the pollster says about those numbers, because that would give you, again, additional insights. 
So we're getting close to the end of the show. I want to ask a, a couple of um, uh, wrap-up questions. We're looking at 2020, and I realize it's it's fairly recent, uh, one week old. Um, but we, we've gone through what surprised you, perhaps at the national or at the state level. But what what's um, perhaps the most surprising of all the surprises that you noticed when uh, watching the results as they've come in all week long? Um, what really um, didn't you see coming? Well, it's not so much on election night because at the end of the day, um, outside of Florida being a, a surprise and the other states tightening up, um, everything kind of moved. Uh, I think what's bigger uh, is what people are talking about. And a lot of the issues that were forefront of 2016 is no longer forefront. They're not talking about immigration. Uh, we're talking about COVID. We're talking about racial justice. Um, the economy is still the number one issue for voters. But other issues have obviously popped up into that area. And as that happens, um, you know, I thought it was interesting to see the Republicans do as well as they did traditionally incumbent presidents when they run for reelection win seats. So uh, it's hard to say that this was a shock, except it seems everything in this administration seems to surprise us. And so them winning seats is is. Uh, part for the course. But I think it woke up some of the Democrats to saying, you know, maybe some of our policies, some of our positions aren't as popular as we thought they were. And because of it, I, I think you're starting to see some of the, uh, the large, you know, the bigger name progressive Democrats question um, where they are in the party. And I, I think there's more questions for both parties about where their parties are heading. Um, and with that, I think we have you know, tumultuous couple of years ahead of us as this realignment continues, because I don't think Wisconsin is necessarily going blue uh, anytime soon um, after what we just saw there. So uh, Pennsylvania, again, will be a battleground state um, if these numbers hold. Uh, Florida, Trump may have turned Florida red um, as the way Obama turned Virginia blue. And if those things happen, we're going to have a slightly different electoral map uh, and um, a lot of excitement. But I think the parties themselves have to realize, uh, or the Democrats right now are having that issue, and the Republicans are in that same boat. Um, they're looking at the moderates. And you know, when I watch Rubio and Cruz and Graham, I think November 5th, 2024 is already here. So... Uh Let's one last question, if you forgive me and allow it. Um, you're looking at 2024 already. You've, you've mentioned a few times in some of your answers. Uh, what will you as a pollster do to ensure that you are the, uh, the one who gets it right in 2024? What will you have learned? You've, you've already said you, you speculate that the turnout will not be as high, perhaps, um, uh, that we may not be doing uh, as much mail-in voting. Uh, things will change. Uh, so... Set that aside, what do you think you'll do better in 2024? Uh, that you... Well, we'll do our best. Um, <laughs> you know, last night I was watching the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers playing, <laughs> who are they playing? The New Orleans Saints. And before the game, they had all seven analysts up there. And they said, who's going to win this game? And every analyst said Tampa Bay. They said Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay, Tampa. And I said, all seven of them said Tampa Bay. And as soon as they finished, I said, Oh, Tampa Bay is going to lose. And I promise you next week, 
all seven analysts are going to be back on Monday on Sunday Night Football giving us their analysis. Now, listen, did they think Tampa Bay was going to lose? No, they gave us what they thought was going to happen, their insights. And that's what we do as a pollster. We look at things and say, hey, this is what it looks like from our perspective. You should look at other people because clearly surveys work, but the interpretation of them are, are difficult, uh, obviously, as, as we see in presidential politics. So that's where I would I would suggest is, you know, this is part of the the uh, election process that media is going. They've created their own polls, so I don't have to do any polling. There's going to be polling because ABC News does polling and CNN does polling. And I don't think they're going to get rid of their polling units. Maybe they do. Um, but if they don't, then those folks are still going to be up there uh, putting out their numbers, talking about it, the horse race of politics. And so. In that regard, not much might change. Um, but as far as what we try to do here at Emerson is improve and technology is going to improve and things are going to change from a communication standpoint. And what we try to do is study and how better to analyze our audience, create messages for uh, better uh, for societal good. And um, we'll continue to, to work on those methods and see what's out there um, and, and push the envelope, uh, you know, you got you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. So. <laughs> and, and another tired uh, uh, cliche, I'll say that's why we play the game, right? You know, if you knew what was going to happen, you wouldn't need elections or you wouldn't need to step on the ball field. Well, so. I'll, I'll say this: uh, the election, the polling, you know, for the last eighty years has been suspect. And when you go back to eight, 1936, you had Literary Digest. But that, you know, to me, the polling isn't there to, you know, tell you this is. There's upsets that happen. It, it, it leans you into, okay, what's happening? How do we make some sense of this so we don't just think it's going to be a 90-point victory for one party or the other? And so the pollster is supposed to give you that sense of what's happening. We overestimated clearly as an industry both times um, what was happening for Clinton and for Biden. Uh, the, this, the difference being is that Biden was able to pull it out. Um, as opposed to, to Clinton, where Trump was able to. But it was really, in my opinion, the same race. Um, and I couldn't believe it because our numbers were showing it higher. I'm like, there's no way, Michigan, Wisconsin, it's all going to come back. And it all came right back. So I think those are some important lessons as uh, we analyze these results. Well, that's good. I, I, uh, finally, I'll, I'll give you, let you give a plug for your program at Emerson. Uh, how can people find you, your results, or... If uh, you've, you've uh, inspired people to uh, want to become professional pollsters and uh, be a disciple. Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this, Joe. <laughs> Not everyone is going to follow the Gospels of polling, but we all deal with survey research throughout our lives. I mean, if you're in radio, if you're in television, you're looking at Nielsen or Arbitron. If we're in industry, we're looking at market research. There's surveys being done all the time, and it's important that we become literate in how to read those results. Now, polling... Um, is a subset of survey research. And to me, it's more exciting because we're, we're trying to do a survey of a moving target of likely voters. So that's what makes it more difficult than just your, your standard surveys. But uh, you can follow us over on Twitter at Emerson Polling. Um, and I, I think that's our, our website as well. So we, we keep it pretty simple. And um, you know, as, I, as I mentioned, We'll continue to uh, to improve upon and work upon this this survey, you know, this performance. But frankly, we built upon 2016 uh, into 2018, and we hope to do the same into 2022 and beyond. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, this has been a great show. I think uh, we've got a lot of uh, we covered a lot of ground, 
and I appreciate you taking your time. And perhaps you'll join us on Hubwonk, uh, what you say, 2024, or might you be ready for 2022? We'll see. We're going to need a couple of months after this one. I feel like, you know, it's after the Rocky movie. But Joe, I appreciate it. Those are good questions. And uh, thanks for being fair with us. All right. Cheers. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, your host. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. You can give us a five-star rating. You can offer a review, and of course, you can share it with friends. If you have ideas for the show or suggestions or comments for me, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk.